grab it, open it up to the book of Philippians. If you do not have a Bible, we have a whole bunch of them in the back, and I'll even give you the page number we're going to be on. If you need one, just raise your hand, and we'll bring one to you quickly. I do want to acknowledge that there's a very special group in this room. I've already mentioned that there are many fathers here, which is really wonderful, but got a friend in ministry who is um, doing the work with the gospel just on the north side of downtown. A friend here is Sergio. And so, Sergio, I would like for you to just quickly stand up, um, mention your church name, introduce your spouse, and then we'll have the rest of your group stand up. Would you do that? My name is Sergio Garcia. We're from Quedusa Grace Church. It's my wife, Sophia. Garcia. The rest of the family from Quedusa. Yeah, we try not to call them old, we just say seasoned, that's what we say, so thank you all for being here, it's a real treat to, to be with you, and we care deeply for what God's doing, not just through the people of your church, but what God's doing in our city, we know that for us to see transformation in our city, in and around the near Ted area, it's going to require, not just near Ted church, but it's going to require uh, churches like Sergio's that they're going to that they've begun and that they're doing the work of the gospel through and, and, and other churches we've mentioned Ben Hayes down in the medical center and there are many great churches in this area new churches and so we care deeply for you all and we're I want you to know just publicly that we're um, we're with you all anything we can do to help or support you all we're new also but anything that we can do to help and support you all along the way we want to do we, we care deeply for your ministry in that right church don't we yeah so um, we're gonna we're gonna do that. Well, we're in Philippians chapter one, starting in verse uh, nineteen. Actually, the latter part of verse eighteen through thirty. And we began a series a few weeks ago called "Joy in Suffering." And what we're seeing here is that Paul writes to the Philippians, and his circumstance is not good, but he finds a reason to rejoice, which is really really fresh, right? All of us encounter difficult circumstances, and to see someone who can rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances, we are inspired. We want to know how in the world does this man do this? There's this verse in here that is a popular one. It's an easy one to memorize. The phrase, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a rich verse. And I want us to think about that and the rest of them here this morning. But I want to ask you a question to get you thinking in that direction. Does your life glorify Jesus Christ? Does your life glorify Jesus Christ? To glorify means to direct other people's attention to the goodness of Christ by your actions. That's a very simple definition. To direct people's attention to the goodness of Jesus Christ by the way in which you live. If your life is about glorifying Christ, you will have joy in every circumstance. You believe that? If your life is about glorifying Christ, you will have joy in every circumstance. The opposite of that is, is if your life is about glorifying anything else, you will have joy only when that thing is meeting your needs. When that thing is going well for you. 
And for instance, if you are glorifying a person, if your attention and affection and worship is toward a person, that works to provide for you joy until that person disappoints you. And that includes your spouse. If your joy is wrapped up in a person, that will work until they leave their socks on the living room floor repeatedly. Or they're not timely with whatever assignment you think they should be timely with. Maybe it's cooking at the dinner or doing the laundry or whatever you think it might be. If you are glorifying a person, it works temporarily. This is the way our word works. You can find joy in certain things temporarily other than Christ, but it's faux. It's fake. It doesn't last. It will disappoint you. If you glorify, this is maybe more common in this area particularly, if you glorify this idea of a quality of life, like, like you're holding up this, this vision that if you could just get to this place where you have this amount of money and this type of thing at your disposal or access to this type of home or car or clothes or number of vacations, if you could just get to this quality of life, there will be joy for you. And so you're focusing on that and pushing towards that and driving towards that and committing yourself to that. If you glorify a quality of life, you will have joy until the money falls short or the economy struggles. What does your life glorify? It's a really simple kind of a question, one that all of us can think about. Paul was a man whose life was about glorifying Christ, which is why he was able to rejoice, wrongly accused, in prison, facing possible death. So this is our passage. We're, we're looking at the second half of a larger section where Paul is updating the Philippians on how his circumstance can be used by God to advance the gospel. So Jonathan taught last week, did a wonderful job. He taught the passages just prior to this one. If you missed it for some reason, you can go online and watch it or listen to it. But Paul is talking to the Philippians about how his circumstances uh, can be used to advance the gospel. Last week, Jonathan talked about his present circumstance. And here, Paul is going to talk a bit more about his present circumstance, but really talk about the circumstance that the Philippians are experiencing, their trial, their struggle, and how that can be used to advance the gospel. So what we want to do is look at Paul's life and the way he thinks about difficulty and see if we can't glean from it so that we can understand more fully what it means to live a life that glorifies Christ, honors Jesus. So let's read this passage together. Would you stand to your feet as we read these verses? The reason we stand to our feet is just a way of physically um, acknowledging that God's word is important. So I'll read it, and then, and then I'll teach it. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may, be, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. May God bless you in this word. You may be seated. First of all, we see that Paul glorifies Christ by being confident that Christ will deliver him. This phrase, for I know that. He's confident that Christ will deliver him. Now, it's important to look at where does this confidence come from? Where does it come from? Does it come from his own ability to muster up self-awareness? Or looking at his own gifts or his own strengths? No, actually, there are two areas that this confidence comes from, and neither one of these include him looking at himself. The confidence comes from, first of all, prayers. The prayers of the saints. Now, there are several things about this passage that push against our Western sensibilities. And one of them is our sense of individualism, and we are on our own to do what God wants us to do, or we're on our own to do life. But what Paul acknowledges is that his confidence in his role in advancing the gospel is connected to the prayers of people for him. Now, this is really, really important. We talk a lot about prayer as a church and the importance of it. We remind you on a regular basis and, and to, that, that we must be praying for each other. We must be praying for the unchurched. We must be, be praying when things are bad, praying when things are good, because what we're saying is, God, we need you to work supernaturally in people's lives. Moms, if you want to bless your husband and help them in their role as father, pray for them. It helps for them to hear you say, I love and appreciate you. It, it helps for you to understand uh, how they're wired and, and how you can and help them accomplish their role as father. And they certainly can help you. But if you want to do something that really supernaturally changes their life and gives them confidence as they seek to play their part in advancing the gospel like Paul is, then pray for them. Commit to pray for them every single day. Now, many of you love and trust your husband. You know that they're strong. You know they're courageous. You see them working hard. You might forget how important it is that God work in their life. You might see that they are, in fact, more successful in the way we would describe it than many other dads. And you think, well, just as long as they stay there, then I'm okay with it. But may we be the kind of people who pray for our dads that they would grow in Christ. The first thing that he says gives, or we see that gives him confidence, 
is, is prayer, the prayer of people. But then there's a second thing here, the spirit of Jesus Christ. I love talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and frankly, some of you have church backgrounds or you've seen the church from a distance and you see the Holy people doing things in the name of the Holy Spirit that's really weird and all kinds of stuff. And I've, I've seen churches where in the name of the Holy Spirit, there's people in, as a part of worship, crawling around on the floor, barking like dogs, and all this crazy stuff. And that distracts and, frankly, hurts the work of the gospel and specifically in us talking about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is, is this the part of God that does the work in the world now? It's a mysterious kind of a thing. You can't quite capture all of the, the parts of God, but what you say about God the Father, you can say about God the Holy Spirit. What you say about God the Holy Spirit, you can say about God the Son. It's a part of the triune being of God. Well, the Spirit is working according to God the Father's will to advance the gospel through men like Paul and through dads like you and moms and kids. He says... Confident. I know that. What gives him confidence? Prayer and the work of the Spirit. Each of these things are helping him. They're giving him courage. Now, when I say courage, I want to put an image of your mind in your mind of someone who has a lot of courage. This is John Weathington. He's one of our church playing residents. And he posted this picture on Twitter. And I just want to Get it out there. You guys can see it. He's in a SpongeBob costume. How did I get it? He put it on the World Wide Web. This is a man who has courage. He stepped out of the doors with this thing on. So he's newly married, and so I don't feel bad at all. Okay, so no, now when we think about confidence, stepping out and being sure that we're going to be taken care of, I want to actually illustrate it in this way. How many of you watched, just the other night, this man, Nick uh, Walenda, walk across this wire, uh, this wire that was run from one side of the Niagara Falls to the other? How many of you watched this on TV? Raise, raise your hand if you watched it. Oh, I'm surprised. I thought, are you embarrassed? Some of you are. I did on my life. I watched it, okay? This is the kind of stuff you do when your wife's out of town. I even watched a little golf. That's how late my life has been the last few days. So I watched this thing of the wire. Here's what it was. Um, it, it's very, uh, very popular to watch. 13 million people watched this guy, Nick Walenda, a bit of a daredevil, crossed some 200 feet in the air on a two-inch wide wire, which is 1,500 feet long. It was strung over the raging waters of Horseshoe Falls, which is the largest of the three falls that make up the Niagara Falls. Now, there were tens of thousands of people gathered all around him. You can go on the internet and find the news story. It's quite remarkable. His grandfather, I believe, attempted a high-wire act and actually died. So he talked a lot about how he wanted to do this to honor his, honor his, his grandfather. But as I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, I kind of quit thinking about one part of it, <coughs> the wire. I mean, there was so much emphasis on him but in my mind, I was thinking about the wire. Are there any engineers in here? I mean, were any of you all wondering, wondering like, okay, who's made this wire? How do we know it's strong enough? I mean, that's a long distance, right? And then what's on each end holding up this wire 
what, what, it's, the wire was, was two inches wide, but, but how do we know it shouldn't have been three inches wide or one and three quarter inches wide? Like, I'm, I'm just like pulsing. This is, I don't know, just pray for me. So, so this is the thing on the wire. So I'm thinking to myself, this guy has incredible confidence, not only in his own legs, but in the wire. Because it doesn't matter how strong your legs are or how much he knows about going from one side to the other or, or that pole. I don't, even, I, don't, I don't care to know what the pole, I guess it has something to balance in him, but, but at the end of the day, if the wire is not strong, he will not have the confidence to step out. This is how Paul is talking about his role in advancing the gospel. He's saying, in this glorifies Christ, I will con I'm confidently stepping out to say that I will be delivered. This is the kind of confidence he had. And what he steps out onto is what he knows about God, which is that God will do what God wants to do. This is his confidence that God's in control and that God can take care of him. He glorifies Christ by being confident. So he steps out and says that Christ will deliver. But it's interesting because Paul, we also see that Paul glorifies Christ by courageously accepting the outcome. For him, deliverance isn't just about getting out of prison. He courageously accepts the outcome, which could be death or life, delivery from prison. And he anticipates it as an opportunity for Christ to be honored. There's a story in Daniel chapter 3, where three guys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, these are three Jewish men who were captured by Nebuchadnezzar. It was a part of um, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to rule over Jerusalem and, and expose or annihilate, annihilate Israel. And so he went in and he took away their best leaders. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three of them. And so the short version of the story is this. There's a moment where Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, wants all of the people to worship him. So he says, whenever the trumpets blare, I want you to worship this, actually, this idol that's built sort of in his honor. So I want you to worship this thing. And so the trumpets blare, everybody bows at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody. The word gets back to the king. There's three men that are not bowing. He says, oh, no, -uh. you're going to worship me. So he tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll give you one more chance. Trumpets blare, they don't bow. He says, you're dead. There's this fiery furnace that he is about to throw them into. And one of them says to him, we believe that God will save us. And even if he doesn't, even if our circumstance leads to death, we'll still praise him. story is that they actually are saved. They come out, King Nebuchadnezzar sees that God has rescued them and for a short time turned in faith to Yahweh God. This illustrates the kind of mindset that Paul has. He says, here I am in prison, in this circumstance. If I, I know I'm going to be delivered, and by delivered I mean I could die and I'll be delivered. Or delivered, I could live, and I'll be delivered. Either way, I'm confident that Christ will be delivered me. And this is an opportunity for Christ 
to receive honor. Verse 20, look at that. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So no matter what, now I want you to think about your circumstance. What about your life is difficult? What about your life seeks to smother your uh, relationship with God? What is it? Some of you are experiencing a big thing. Your circumstance is particularly difficult. What is it about your life? What could happen to your life that could create in you such anxiety about whether or not God is even capable of delivering you? Is it a financial stress? There's so much uncertainty. What is it? Paul glorifies Christ by courageously accepting the outcome. You know, when we think about uh, the best outcome, oftentimes, again, this our Western sensibility is to say the only really good outcome is life and financial prosperity. That's, that's the way we've been trained to think. But what Paul is saying, he says throughout this book, is that if I am to die, or even in Philippians 4, he says, even if I'm poor, it's all for the glory of Christ. Actually, it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, in context, is talking about him being rich or poor. Paul is about glorifying Christ. We also see that Paul glorifies Christ by putting the progress of others ahead of his own desire for comfort. Puts the progress of others ahead of his own desire for comfort. Look at verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Although he recognizes that he could die or be saved, and he admits, I would rather go on to be with Christ, I would rather to go on to the next life, the weight of responsibility for him is heavy, the weight of the circumstance, he feels it. He said, I'd rather do that. He glorifies Christ by putting the progress of, Heather, of others ahead of his own desire for comfort. So he says, because it's good for you for me to stay so that I can help you work out the gospel in your own life, I will stay, or I want to stay. What a wonderful, wonderful passage on a day like Father's Day, right? A good father is, is, is a man who can put the progress of his family ahead of his own desire for comfort. A good father, did you hear that? Is a man who can put the progress of his own family, of his kids, and their specific circumstance ahead of his own desire for comfort. Now, some of you, like me, have fathers that are not a part of your life. When I was a kid, I had a, my father was not a part of my life. I had a father who didn't know he was supposed to put the progress of his kids ahead of his own comfort. And when things got difficult, he bailed. Some of you are here, and that's your experience. That's your story. And, and I hate that for you. That's, that's terrible. And I, I feel that wound just in some ways like you did. But what we acknowledge is that Paul here is glorifying Christ by putting the progress of others ahead of his own. And this is a great model for us as dads. 
Now, some of you have kids, and your dad was a sorry dad, and you want to commit, like I have, to starting a new phase, a new chapter in the role of dad in your family. That's what I think of often when I'm tempted to retreat to my own comfort, my own prioritizing my own desires instead of putting the needs of my poor children and my wife ahead of me. Paul glorifies Christ in this way. Paul looked out over the city, thought about Philippi. He saw a need for people to know who Jesus is, for them to understand what the good news is. Was it difficult? Yes. Dad, is your role difficult? Yes. It is hard. It is really hard. Not only are you dealing with the junk that your kids grow up with, and, and, but you're dealing with your own junk, right? Is it difficult? Yes. But we must do it, just like Paul said. He cared for the progress of others. He recognized his own mission here in this phrase. He wanted to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Tell your kids that. If you're ever frustrated with them, just tell them. I would rather be dead, but I'm going to remain, continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. It'll freak them out a little bit. It'll probably be good. Now, for all of us, what Paul's doing here, he's glorifying Christ by putting the progress of others ahead of his own desire for comfort. This is a great model for those of you that are in leadership here at Neartown Church. When we think about what the church is supposed to be like, we ought to first think about those that are a little further down the line, investing in those that aren't quite as far as long. And oftentimes that has, uh, with respect to age, but not always. When we think about the church, actually in our culture, when we think about the church, we think about whether or not we like the preacher or the music. But really the way that the church is designed is that those that are a little further down the line are supposed to be discipling those that aren't quite as far down the line. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He did not actually say, go and make a church service that everybody really, really likes attending every other week. So when you think about your role as a part of what God wants to do to advance the gospel, you ought to consider, are you putting the progress of others ahead of your own desire for comfort, specifically in the church? It can be difficult to remain and continue with people who will not turn your phone call or don't show up to their NT group or, or don't seem to reciprocate your, your desire for them to progress. But as a leader, we must put the progress of others ahead of our own desire to come. We must continue it. We must continue shouldering that responsibility. Right? This is what it means to make disciples. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying to them, I care about your growth. And so I'm going to continue working among you for your progress and joy. It's interesting the role of a leader. We can help others experience joy. Paul admitted he is feeling joy in the midst of his circumstance, though his plight is terrible. But we can help others experience joy as leaders. This is also a good word for those of you who are actively building relationships with people outside the church. Are you willing, believer in Jesus Christ, to care about the progress of the gospel in the lives of unchurched people more than your own comfort? Think about it. Are you willing 
progress of others in their spiritual journey, of them understanding the gospel ahead of your own desire for comfort. I, I stand before you as a pastor whose heart is filled with joy because I recognize that every one of you, particularly those that you that have come out of larger churches and, 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 and other places, you could go to those places and get a wider variety of programs. You could get uh, more, um, more um, offerings in the children's area, although we have a great empty kids. But I think what many of you have done is you said, you know what, I care about the progress of the gospel in and around the near town area. And so I'm going to make the drive. Or I'm going to to um, meet at the Y when you could meet in a different kind of building. You know, you're going to do something. And I, I don't want any of us to kind of get puffed up and go, oh, we're so great. God's really using us here. Look at all that we've suffered. We're meeting in a YMCA. You know? <laughs> Because really, it's, it's foolish to think like that. What I'm saying to you is I acknowledge that for many of you, you have put your own comfort aside for a season for the progress of the gospel in and around the near town area. And I want you to know I thank God for you. I want you to know that. You know, I'll be honest with you. There are times, my weaker moments, where I think to myself, I could live on a whole lot less money if I lived somewhere further away than the near town area. I think of that often, and, 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 but, but, but God regularly reminds me, like, Russell, that'd be more comfortable for you if you had a bigger backyard and all these kinds of things. But really, what are you called to? What will, what's your specific role in advancing the gospel? And my role is to plant a church in the near town area and live here. So for you, will you glorify Christ? by being confident that Christ will deliver you from your circumstance and understanding that even if you die in the midst of it, which is horrible to think of, certainly, no matter the result of your deliverance and what it means for you to be delivered, that it's an opportunity for Christ to be honored. And will you glorify Christ by, in the midst of your circumstance and being delivered through the circumstance, put the progress of others ahead of your own desire for comfort? Will you do that? If so, you, my friends, have an opportunity to glorify Christ. That's interesting in verse 27 because Paul moves from talking about himself and the way in which we see the way in which he's glorifying Christ to giving a word to those believers in Philippi. And this is a really good word for us as a new church and for those of you that are our friends in ministry starting a new church. Here's what he says. He says, Christ gets glory when we unite. See that in verse 27? Only let your manner of word, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christ gets glory when we unite. This literally means we're one soul. We're not watching somebody doing the work of the gospel. We are together doing the work of the gospel. I try to communicate this really clearly as a part of what it means to be a member of our church. We don't actually call the members, we call mission partners, which comes from Philippians. It talks about a lot about partnership. Because we are to be united for the advance of the gospel. 
as one soul, he goes on to say, without fear. See, there were those that were opposing their work of the gospel. Their circumstance was difficult because of their faith was bringing to them persecution. So Christ gets glory when we unite without fear, striving. This is like an athletic team. So, uh, anybody been watching the NBA Finals? Watching the NBA Finals? Like four of us. Um, I love NBA basketball. It's a requirement to being on the pastoral leadership team is loving NBA basketball. Isn't that right, guys? That's right. We talk about it as part of our weekly prayer meeting. Um, and, and one of my favorite things about it is the storyline behind the actual game. And right now, the big storyline is that you have LeBron James, who just a few years ago called a press conference to tell everybody that he was going to take his talents to South Beach, to Miami. And then he claimed in front of everybody that he was going to win not four, not five, not six, but seven championships. And so the nation watched as this man who'd been told his entire life he was a king started acting like one, right? And so each game, we see him, and if he's anything less than perfect, he's criticized, arguably the most criticized athlete in the world. But here he has his team, Dwayne Wade. The dynamics are this. Dwayne Wade has had to say, although he's a superstar, um, I'll let LeBron be the man. And they've linked arms, and they're striving together, right? This is what Paul is telling the Philippians to do, to strive together. And then you have on the other side the Oklahoma City Thunder. I grew up in Oklahoma. Where did the woo come from? I just want to know. Yeah, okay, yes. JJ? Oklahoma City Thunder. I grew up in Oklahoma, and I want you to know it's a pretty big deal to have a victory of anything when you live in Oklahoma. Much less have a team in the finals just a few years after they've arrived there. Kevin Durant is their superstar. He's actually a Christian. I did a little research and, and found a place where he confessed Jesus as Christ, which is wonderful. His attitude, totally different. He just signed a five-year extension. Hardly anybody knew about it or heard about it because he did it quietly in his own home. He wrote his signature on a piece of paper. Humbly. And here is his team. He's very rarely criticized, I, I, as I observe it. He's striving with his team. And there seems to be less about the one guy, whether or not he can carry his team, like we see with the Miami Heat, and more about the team and whether or not they have what it takes to get it done. You see, sometimes when we think about what makes a great church, we think about, does that church have the one guy? But what I'm telling you is that what wins championships, yes, this is a prediction, is the team that has the one guy who's really about promoting, encouraging, helping the progress of the other guys. Paul is saying here, Christ gets glory when we unite, friends of Neartown Church, people of Neartown Church, please let us 
unite. Let us operate as one soul, striving together like a team. I promise you, I am the leader, I recognize that, but it is my aim to push you forward and to help you progress for your joy in the faith and so that you can see your unchurched friends experience the joy of Jesus Christ. This is my aim, this is my goal. I am not claiming championships or rings for anybody. All I want to do is say to you, you are an important part of this team. And like Paul is telling the Philippians to unite and without fear, and when we begin to be opposed, although we've not received a lot of opposition yet, we will be opposed as God is using us. Let's stick together. Let's move forward. That's my exhortation to you in church also. So Christ gets glory when, you, when we unite. What I'm saying to you is, you have an opportunity to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And the way that you glorify Jesus Christ in school, in work, in your home, in your neighborhood, is by being constant in Christ. Not in yourself, in Christ. By knowing that no matter what happens at the end of whatever circumstance is bogging you down, in Christ will get glory. By uniting together as a church so that we can live on Christ. As we do these things and glorify Christ, you know what will happen? We'll experience joy that is made available only to those that are in Christ. I pray that that would describe us as a church. Let's pray together.